how do you like your coffee? Maybe you go to a restaurant and the, 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 the server comes up and you, you order a, a cup of coffee and they ask, well, how do you like it? Or you go over to a friend's house and you're going to sit down and, and, and enjoy some, some time together, play some games, or maybe after dinner they pull out the coffee, warm it up, the coffee pot, and they say, hey, how do you take your coffee? So I think there's a lot of ways that you could answer that question. You guys know that I love coffee. Don't just like, I love coffee. And I, I think I've shared, shared before, I think one of God's greatest common mercies and graces in life is coffee. Can I get an amen to that? I think this coffee is just such a, a beautiful uh, design of who God is and God's character. But we can talk about that later. But I love coffee. So you come over to my house, I'm kind of a coffee snob, and I like the, the little citrusy roasted beans, and I like to grind them myself, and I've, I, I love espresso, and I could make you an espresso, or I could make you a latte, or a, a macchiato, or a cappuccino, or what, whatever it may be, and it may not be as good as cafe au lait, but it's not that bad. But I think that one of the beautiful things in life is that God lets us pick and choose many ways how we enjoy the things he's created. How we get to pick and choose many of the things that God has given us to, uh, to help improve our lives or, or help us to enjoy the things around us. You can pick and choose the kind of music you like. You can pick and choose what, what kind of food you like or where you want to go for dinner. You can pick and choose how you want to work out at the gym unless you want to have rock hard abs, of course. And then you got to do setups. I hate to break it to you. That's just the way that it goes. But we have this beautiful reality around us that we can pick and choose so much of how we experience life. But there's one thing we really should never pick and choose, and that's the way we read. See, we might be able to pick and choose what we read. We might be able to pick and choose when we read, but we should never pick and choose what we read. Because if we pick and choose or how we read, I should say, then we end up missing the intention of the author. Let's just say this week you're out at Barnes and Nobles and you're, you're, it's after work and you're just looking around and you want to pick up something new to read or you're scrolling around on Amazon and you remember people have told you for years that you need to read the Lord of the Rings books, but you never have. And so you go and you find Tolkien's section and you find the Lord of the Rings books and you, you find one and you pick it up and you grab Return of the King. And if you started with Return of the King, you would know this is a great story. And this is going to tell us how the story ends but you would miss the storyline. You would miss the plot. You would miss the theme. You would miss the development of the characters. You would miss the, the tension. If you picked up and started off at the end, then you would miss so much of what the author intended you to see. Let's say this week I invited you over to my place for movie night. And I said, hey, we're going to watch The Matrix. Have you seen the new one? Let's come over and watch it together. But instead of sitting down and watching Matrix 4, instead I begin to just show you clips of Neo fighting Mr. Smith. And these are great fight scenes. These are, these are awesome. It makes you realize that Keanu Reeves really is a good actor. He really is. And you're like, wow, this is great. But I really don't know the storyline. Why is he bending bullets and defying this, the laws of gravity? What is really going on? And you miss the storyline. You miss the plot. Let's say I invite you over and it's time to watch Star Wars. But instead of starting with number four... We end up going and just watching clips of Luke and Darth Vader fighting. And again, it's great. And you're like, who's the dude with the sweet black helmet? This guy's awesome. But again, we just don't know what's going on because we've picked up too late in the story. See, that wouldn't make sense. And for most of you, don't read like that. You don't watch movies like that or watch series like that. But for some reason, most of us read our Bibles like that. 
See, for most of us, when we read our Bibles, we do that very thing. We start two-thirds of the way in. Or we go all the way to the back and see how the story ends, but we have failed to see the plot and the storyline and the development of the characters and even the tension build. Or maybe for you, you guys get excited like I do at the beginning of a new calendar year and you say, this is the year. And so you go and you read Genesis and you read a few chapters into Genesis and it's kind of like reading the introduction in the book, but then we stop and then we go back to the end again. But what if we miss something when we do that? What if the story that we've been given in this amazing book right here has so much more to give us and to teach us and to show us, but to actually get it, we have to learn to read it from start to finish. As I mentioned this morning, we are kicking off this journey we're going on called The Greater Story. And over the course of the next probably 15 months, we're going to be working our way from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And we're going to see how this is one beautiful story all brought together and and to, to unfold something that's going to teach us about us and about life and about God and, and about God's story. And if we learn to read it the right way, it's going to unveil things for us we've never seen before. Alistair Begg says this. He says that the Bible is one story that unfolds in one book by one author about one subject, a story that moves from promise to fulfillment. And if we read this Bible, if we read this story together as one whole story, we begin to see that it's, it's not this book with disjointed testaments and weird, strange poetry and these prophetic guys who just seem really angry. Maybe they're just really hangry. Maybe they don't have good coffee. There's something going on that I don't get. So I just skip to the back. And then there's this, these beautiful gospels about Jesus, but then we get to the end, and there's this really weird letter from John that doesn't make any sense, and so we're just going to camp out where it's comfortable. But I think when we decide we're going to read all as a whole, as one story, God's going to unveil something bigger and more beautiful than we could ever imagine on our own. Notice what N.T. Wright says. He says this. N.T. Wright says that Scripture is, at its heart, the great story that we sing in order not just to learn it with our heads, but to become part of it through and through the story that in turn becomes part of us. So as we do this, we're going to see that this is one beautiful story from start to finish, that God is telling us his story, and we're going to be able to see our place in that story. And when we start at the beginning, we work our way through, we're going to see the storyline develop. We're going to see the themes continue. We're going to see the plot and the tension and the development of the characters And these are the things that God doesn't want us to miss. And so in the first page of the first book, of the first chapter, and the first verse, I want you to hear what God has to say to you. Grab your Bibles. Genesis 1, verse 1. God says this. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And just right with that one statement, God has revealed so much to us. Yet the question is, how do we read this book? You you know, you start here right at the beginning, the book of beginnings, the book of origins, Genesis. And we have to ask the question, how do we read it, though? Because I don't know about you, but if you're like me, it's not really easy to read. Just from from the beginning, you know, God didn't give us a a sample to how to understand. He didn't give us a key or a legend to how to make sense of this book. He just tells us, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. So, again, how do we read it? 
how do we understand it? Because I don't know about you, but I think a lot of us come in to this book, of the book of Genesis, with a lot of assumptions. We come in with a lot of opinions. We come in with a, a lot of perspectives already that maybe we, we've developed on our own or we've heard or we've read or we've been told about. So God's beginning this story of beginnings, and we have to ask, how are we supposed to understand it and to read it? Because when I read Genesis 1, when I look at Genesis 1, chapter 1, I see that God is answer, beginning to answer questions that we all ask. Answers like, well, who are we? And how did we get here? What's our purpose? Like, why is the world a mess? Why is life so hard? How do we fix what's broken? And I think Genesis answers those questions for us. But one of the things that you and I bring in with us that we don't realize is we come in as modern 21st century readers asking modern 21st century questions. And so we open Genesis chapter 1, and we want to ask different questions because we want Genesis 1 to be a scientific textbook. We want Genesis 1 to teach us, God, how did you make it? How did you do it? When did you do it? What did it all happen? How did it all come together? Is evolution real? Are dinosaurs real? God, when did you make squirrels and flies? Because those could not have been made at the beginning because they're so terrible, right? Like, God, how did all this come together? But I I want us to be careful, and I want us to, to, to ask the right questions because Genesis 1 is hard to read. So here's the question. Who gets to interpret what it means? Is it the experts? Because Genesis 1 does talk about the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and water and make, uh, makes assumptions on like, things like tectonic plates and creation of animals and all of these things. So who gets to determine what it means? Do we let the scientists? Or, or maybe we let the Bible scholars do it, people that have devoted their lives to studying the Bible and seeing how it's unfolded throughout the pages of Scripture and how archaeology supports the, the words of God. Or, or maybe it's us. Is, is it you and me? Do we get to be the ones who interpret it? Is that what it's meant for us just to make our interpretation of what God says? And that's what it means for us. Let me ask you a question. Who gets to determine what this word means? Nail. Who who gets to determine that one? Let's say you're talking to a carpenter. The carpenter is going to say, well, the nail is the thing that I use. Of course, I'm not a carpenter, so I'm going to get this wrong. But it's, the nail, it's what I use to put boards together, to make frames stick on houses, to put pictures on walls. But let's say that you are talking to somebody who works at a salon. And they're going to say, well, no, no, the nail is the thing that we, again, paint or make beautiful. Or, or let's say that you're talking to somebody who just walked out of taking their final exam and they're ecstatic because they did what? Nailed it. Who gets to determine what it means? How about this word? column. What does that mean? Well, again, it could be the support structure on your porch. It could be something that you see on the Pantheon as you go and tour through Europe. It could be that column on your Excel spreadsheet that you unfortunately have to open as soon as you get to work tomorrow. It could be that thing you read on your favorite website or in your favorite newspaper if you're talking to an author. Who gets to determine what it means? Well, the author does. And they reveal it to us by context. Let's say you get pulled over this week on your way to work or into the mountains. And the officer walks up to you and says, do you know how fast you're going? And you say, well, officer, actually, I just kind of interpreted that speed limit sign. It said 70 just to be a recommendation. You know, I just didn't really think it was going to be an issue if I went 95. And they said, well, I hate to break it to you, but 
But based on my interpretation as the, the law, you are speeding and you're going to get a ticket. Or let's say that Verizon calls you and says, hey, I noticed you haven't paid your cell phone bill in three months. And you say, well, you know, I just thought that was kind of a suggested donation. I didn't realize this was really something you expected me to pay. What's Verizon going to say? I'm the one that gave you the phone, and I'm the one that provided the service. So that bill is due today, or I'm going to cut your phone. See, context is determined by the creator or the author or the person in charge. And I think this is something that we have to learn when we're reading the book of the Bible, because we have to learn that the Bible was written for us. It wasn't written to us. The Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. The Bible was written thousands of years ago to an ancient Near East reader with an ancient Near East worldview who was asking way different questions than you and I ask. See, the ancient Near East viewer and reader was somebody who was completely different than, than you and me. God writes this book of Genesis through a man named Moses to a group of people who have just been rescued out of Egypt who had lived in slavery their entire life. And now he's leading them through the wilderness to a place called the Promised Land that he, they have no idea what it looks like or how long they're going to get there. And they're asking all kinds of different questions. See, these people are asking questions like, so what we just saw in Egypt, that was done by this God? And, and this God is our God? Well, if this God is our God, then what does that mean? Because how come we don't see miracles like that in our lives? Because if, if that God is our God, then how is he going to help us in life? Because honestly, life's kind of hard right now. We don't have a lot of food, and we don't have a lot of water, and we, we got some bad crops, and our health doesn't seem to be very good. How is that God our, our God? And see, we, we read this and we ask different questions. You know the questions that the, the ancient Near East readers weren't asking? They weren't asking about the Big Bang. And they weren't asking about dinosaurs. And they weren't asking about evolution. They were asking very different questions than us. So here, here's the thing. And I know this is a long setup for, for what we're going to do over the next few months. But what I want to say is, if we're going to learn to read the Bibles the way that God wants us to understand our Bibles, then we have to learn to ask the questions that God is answering for us. Because if we ask the wrong questions, we're going to be frustrated. And if we try to make our answers fit the questions God is asking, then we're going to lead ourselves down the wrong direction. So with that in mind, context in mind, and God writing the Bible for us, not necessarily to us in mind. Let's look at Genesis 1 and just the first few verses, and let's see that God has something really big and really beautiful that he wants us to see as we open up this greater story together. So look with me, Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. You know, one of the big questions that humanity has asked from the very beginning and philosophers have talked about for millennia is that question, how did all this get here? Where did all this begin? How did we get here? Is there a God? If, he, if there is, is he personal? Can we know him? In Genesis 1.1, God very simply answers all of those questions in one concise statement. In the beginning, there was God. And God made the heavens and the earth. All of this that you see is here 
Because I, God, created it. And all of this that you, you see, you can know because I have given it to you to be able to see and enjoy. You know, there's a phrase that, that Latin scholars would use when talking about this idea of God creating. It's called ex nihilo. You guys want to learn a little Latin? Do they say that with me? Ex nihilo. Ex nihilo means created out of nothing. And that's what God is saying. That at one point in time, there was just me. There was no physical matter and that I created it all. You know, if you look back over the, 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 the timeline of history and you see some of the beautiful arts, the things that, that artists and sculptors and painters have created, we can marvel at the, their creations. I think of Michelangelo. My, Michelangelo's sculpture of Moses, one of the, the great works. Can you believe he sculpted that out of stone? But here's the thing. Michelangelo needed the stone. He needed the pick. He needed his tools to sculpt this beautiful piece of work. God creates. Michelangelo sculpts. Or maybe Rembrandt. Maybe you love art. Rembrandt, such a, an amazing artist, such an incredible attention to detail. Here's his self-portrait of himself. Imagine if he had a real mirror to look at when he drew this picture. I mean, this, think about what he needed to create this picture of himself. He needed canvas. He needed paint. He needed brushes. He, in his creativity, drew and painted something beautiful, but he still needed the materials to do it. Ex nihilo, God, Genesis 1.1 says that God created out of nothing, that God created from scratch. Now, of course, you and I, we read that and we think 21st century questions, right? We're really like, okay, God, well, how did you create it? How, how did you do it, God? Tell me about the, the Big Bang. Was there's this little ball of matter, right? This little dense, infinite thing of infinite density with intense heat that created this singularity. And God, when did you do it? Was it 13.8 billion years ago? God, tell me how. And God says, actually, let me, what I'm going to tell you is that I created it. I created it all. And I created it out of Nothing. See, what we have to understand when we read Genesis 1-1 and we want 21st century scientific textbook answers, we have to realize God isn't writing this to tell us how. What's he, what's he writing to tell us? Who? Not how, but who? See, see, Genesis is an ancient document written thousands of years ago to a pre-scientific people that live completely different. They do nothing about the, the idea that the earth was a sphere traveling through space. They had no idea that the sun was further away than the moon. It was thought till actually until a couple hundred years at BC that the, the world was actually encapsulated into a sphere. And so when you looked at the sky and you saw it was blue, you thought, well, water's blue. That must be water up there too. And so we come to this book and we see that, that God is communicating something to a people that wouldn't have understood it if we wanted questions answered the way we're asking them today. Now, could God have said, wait, wait, guys, I'm going to push pause. Let me explain to you how the world works. Let me start with the atom, okay? And here's how the atom works. And here's carbon and proteins. And let me just explain how the universe works. And God didn't do all that. Why didn't he do that? Well, he could have. But again, context. They wouldn't have understood it probably if he would have. Truth be told, pray we won't understand it if he told us to. And so God is communicating this in a way that the people are going to understand it. And God is communicating universal, transcendent truth through culture. And he chose not to update it. Why? Because God isn't teaching us science. He's teaching us theology. He's teaching us who he is and who we are and why we are here. So God uses Moses to write this book 
to a group of people who just were rescued out of Egypt. And if you know anything about the history of Egypt and the way they view creation, it was very different because creation was governed by many small gods and the, the sun god and the moon god and the, 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 the god who waters the plants and all of these different gods were involved in creation. And so instead of God trying to tell us all these scientific details, what God does is he says to these people who lived their entire lives in Egypt under this mythology, and God says, let me set it straight. There's actually only one God, and that's me. And guess what? I'm your God. And so when you look around and you see all this, guess who created it? I did. All these little fake gods you grew up in Egypt hearing about, they're not real. They're stories. What is real is me. I created it all. See, I think for a lot of us, again, we want Genesis 1 to give us the five-proof text that God exists. We want us to give us all the reasons why we can believe that God is the one that created this. But what I want you to see is that when God writes this book through Moses, God is writing to a people who in Egypt just saw God part the Red Sea, who just saw these plagues, who saw day turn to night, who saw the river where they normally fish for trout turn to blood. They saw frogs and locusts and all kinds of weird things going on. And now they're coming out of that, and they're not wondering if God exists. They're just trying to figure out who this God is. So God writes this story to them and says, I am your God, and I'm the one that created all of this. See, God writes Genesis 1, 1 to us and says, I created the heavens and the earth because what he wants us to do is he wants us to look up and he wants us to look around. And he wants to show us how big he is. And he wants us to teach us things about his character. He says, I created the heavens and I created the earth. And that should cause us to look up. You know, just think about that statement. I created the heavens. You know, a typical galaxy consists of billions of stars. Our Milky Way galaxy has over 200 billion stars in our galaxy alone. It would take you 100,000 light years just to go from left to right in our Milky Way galaxy. Just our galaxy alone. The next galaxy over, it's the Andromeda galaxy. This galaxy is even bigger than our galaxy. You know how long it would take you to get to this galaxy? 2.5 million light years just to get to that galaxy. This is how big God is. God is saying, look up at the stars. I created that. That's how big I am. But I'm also personal because I came to tell you about me. God says, look at the earth. Look around you. I created the heavens and the earth. Look at the earth. Look around you. Just see. One of the beautiful things about living in the 21st century is we get to see what science teaches us. That if we were any closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we were any further from the sun, then we would be cold. If we didn't spin 365 times a year, we wouldn't have seasons. If the earth didn't spin like it does, we wouldn't have 24-hour cycles where life would not be possible. If we didn't have the perfect mixture of oxygen, we wouldn't be able to breathe. If the earth wasn't tilted at the perfect point of axis and we didn't have the moon exactly where it was in proportion to the sun, we would not have gravity. God says, look around and see. I created all of this. I'm big and powerful, and everything I created is majestic. But he wants us to know something, that he didn't just set it, set it and forget it. He's not some impersonal deity. He is someone who's intimately involved in our lives. Look at verse 2. This is what he tells us. He says this. He says in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
Now, our, our 21st century minds, again, go, hold on, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying that the, the earth was there before the sun was there? Like, how does that work? Like, how, how's the earth here, but there's no light? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Come on, God, tell us how he did it. But remember, not how, but who and why. In this verse 2, there's is a really cool term in Hebrew. I'm going to teach you guys something today. When he says the earth was, was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the earth, in Hebrew, this is known as tohu. Say that with me. Tohu. tohu. Vavohu. Vahoshek. All right, say it together. Tohu. Vavohu. Vahoshek. Tell somebody that this week. They're going to think you're crazy. <laughs> tohu. Vavohu. Vahoshek. It, it's this picture that b- before before God goes and creates the creation story, which we'll see next week, he is saying that the work world was, was void, it was empty, it was dark, there was nothing there, and his spirit was hovering over the waters. And what they're saying, what one commentator says, a lot of commentators will say is, well, it's this picture, this picture of chaos. There's this creation and there's this chaos and it's dark and it's empty and it's lonely and there's nothing there. But yet the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. See, the Egyptians believed that when the world was created, there was just this endless dark water. And these little fake gods came and did their little part to create. And God's saying, no, no, no. Take that picture you had. And there's my Spirit hovering right over the waters. And then he says this in verse 3. He says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And in verse 4, God saw that the light was good. And so it's this picture of God showing us that there was this emptiness, there was this voidness, there, there was this darkness, but God was there. And God came to bring order to the chaos. The God came to bring light to the darkness. That God came to bring life to what was lifeless. And so what God is saying is, look, I'm not some impersonal God. I am here and I am making all things new. J.D. Greer says this. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth it. Notice what he says. He says that when God created everything, he did it by starting with a formless void and then shaping it with his word. He did that to show that in the same way our lives are a formless void until God's word comes and to bring life and peace and beauty and order. And so if if you were someone who had just came out of living under Pharaoh your entire life, and now you're in the wilderness with God, and you hear, you read those words, let there be. Well, that's the decree of a king. And so what God is saying to these Egyptian people is, I'm your king. And I said, let there be light, and there was light. I am in charge of creation. I am governing all that you see, and that means that I am over every little aspect of your life, that I care about everything to the finite details, that I'm personal, that I'm here, and that I take what's chaotic and dark, and I bring order and life to it. So forefront, as we think about wrapping up this very first couple verses in Genesis, what God is saying is that everything I do, I do with purpose, and I have a plan, and I bring order. And that means that you can trust me with your life. Israel, you can trust me to be your God forefront, you can trust him that he's going to bring order and life and light and peace and beauty into your life because he's the creator of all things. 
And what I want us to see is this has major implications on our life because if we can understand what God is saying, the implication means for us that God is for us. If he's the creator, then we can get rid of the idea that anything happens by chance. And we can believe that God is in control of everything. God is in control of what looks like chaos and darkness because he's bringing order and light to it. And this means that when you and I step into 2022 in a world full of pandemics and the next variant and all of these potentially scary things in a job market that's crazy in a housing market that's impossible in a place where we have lost loved ones and we're sick and we are unsure of what the future holds. This means that when God says, I created the heavens and the earth and I said, let there be light and there was light, that I'm personal and I'm here and I'm for you means that we can trust God and know that all of it's going to be okay. Not because God gives us a five-step program to find peace and order in the chaos. Or not because we on our own have enough power to have the strength to get through it. But because God says he brings order to what's chaotic. We can trust that. And we can allow that to change us because we know that God brings life to what was once lifeless. And this book From the very beginning, we see God is bringing order to chaos when God created the heavens and the earth. And we see right near the middle that God brought order to chaos when he sent his son Jesus here to go to the cross and take our chaos and give us life. And we see at the very end of this book that God is going to bring order to chaos. And we can know right now in our lives, no matter what you're walking through, no matter how hard things are, that God is bringing order to chaos in your life today and tomorrow and the next day. So but God begins this amazing story with a purpose and a plan. And he's going to reveal an ending that's going to be beautiful and deeper and richer than anything we could ever see or imagine on our own. But he's challenging us to learn to read it and understand it the way he has intended. Because we've got to start seeing life through his lens. I want to show you a picture. We're going to close with this, invite the worship team back on stage. Anybody know where this, this town is? Anybody recognize this town? Some of you maybe took a trip to Europe when you were younger. You might have been there. This is St. Remy. In France. This is the town of St. Remy in France. It's a, it's a pretty picture. It's an okay picture, right? You can see some beautiful buildings. How about this picture? Anybody seen that one before? Starry Night. Who, who painted Starry Night? Van Gogh. Van Gogh painted Starry Night out of his bedroom window when he was looking down on the town of St. Remy. So which one of those pictures is true? Is it the real picture of St. Remy? Or is it the interpretation of St. Remy by Van Gogh? See, which one is true? Which one is right? Because if you look at the first picture, go back to the first picture for a second. You don't really see much going on. You see the picture of the steeple, and I'm assuming there's people down there, but you don't really see anything else. Well, let's go back to Van Van Gogh. We see lights in the houses. We see the, the, the sun, and, or we, we see the, the moon and the stars, and we see how the atmosphere is spinning and moving. And which one seems like there's a lot more life to it? It's Van Gogh. See, when, when we come to Genesis 1 and we want to look at it like a picture and we want to see, God, show us what you really want us to show us, God is saying, wait, let me show you something else instead. Let me show you Genesis 1. 
Because Genesis 1 is God's Van Gogh. And he's showing us there's so much more to the picture we're seeing. Because when we look at life and we see chaos, we see darkness, we see emptiness, God's saying, no, there's so much more going on. If you just look for it, if you just learn to see it, if you just learn that God is the one that brings it. So forefront, I'm excited for us to be on this journey together. Because as we do, we're going to see that God is the one who creates with a purpose and a reason. And God is the one who brings order to the chaos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we learn to look at it through his lens, we'll see that he is bringing order and life to us too. So let's just learn to look for it.